to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. The gentleman I have on my show, I still remember the first time I heard his music. It was when Year of the Cat came out, and it was in 1976. And I was, uh, I was 13. And, and I remember sitting in my parents' rec room, as my mom called it, our little den, and we had a stereo. And it was played on either WMMR or WYSP in Philadelphia. And I've been a fan of his for a long time. And he has the most soothing voice, and he's such a great writer and musician. And my guest is Al Stewart. How are you doing, Al? I'm doing okay today. How about you? I'm doing well. So let's talk about your career. You've had such a fantastic career. Um, what... What made you decide to get into music? Were you, a, as a young kid, were you uh, listening to a lot of music, or what made you go down the path of this wonderful career? Well, it all started with um, you know, when rock and roll came along. I think that was the first thing I was really aware of. Um, all the all the early greats, uh, the founding fathers of rock and roll, Elvis, obviously, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Eddie Cochran, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers. <laughs> decide to play guitar and then pursue this career? Well, I, I, I got, got a guitar for the same reason that every other kid of my generation did. Um, someone who's unknown in America but was the most famous person in, in, in England at the time was a guy called Lonnie Donegan. And if you ask, well, you can ask anyone, starting with the Beatles and Jimmy Page, and you can go through the whole list of, you know, all the English invasion people, and they all bought guitars because of Lonnie Donegan. I mean, every single one of them. And um, I, I can give you a little statistic. In 1956, there was something like 5,000 guitars sold in, in the whole of England. Um, the following year, 250,000 guitars were sold there. <laughs> Now, you get this guitar, you're into it. Where do you where do you start playing? Do you do you, and when do you start writing? Because you've written so many great songs. But did you start writing and playing together when you wanted to get that band going, or did you sit there and decide you wanted to do covers, or how did that work? Um, well, I started writing songs really, really early. I mean, I got the guitar just before my 14th birthday, and uh, I, it was a matter of months, I think. Uh, I started writing pretty terrible songs. I wrote at least a hundred before I <laughs> before I got the knack of it. You know, um, all the early ones are, are pretty ridiculous. You know, uh, I think the first one was called "Lay Your Bones Down, Jones." <laughs> <laughs> so you you started writing, and yeah, and what after you wrote that? What did where did you take these songs? Where did you start performing at? Known as beat groups in those days, uh, 
So, so you you took his advice. You didn't take his advice, and so where do you go from there? Well, I joined a local band. Um, it, it's an interesting band. It was called the Sabers. Um, what makes it interesting, apart from the fact that you know it was interesting to me because it was uh, you know I was playing all the pop hits of the day, but our singer went on to become uh, the most famous disc jockey in England. It's a guy called Tony Blackburn. Started, when you started the folk, I mean, how much, I mean, how did inf Dylan, Dylan influence you so much? Just when you listened to his lyrics, you went, I want to write them? Or, I mean, how did he influence you? Well, I, it started um, when I was still living in Bournemouth. Um, I think I was probably one of the only people who had ever heard of Bob Dylan. And I wouldn't have done, but for a girl who worked in the record store, uh, who was passionate and said, there's this guy called Bob Dylan. And you've got to listen to him. And I said, okay, well, you, you know, you know your stuff, so I will. And um, then I began to learn the songs. And the first one I learned was actually Masters of War. Uh, and at the time, we, we had a residency in a rock club in, in Bournemouth, uh, playing in one of my bands. And uh, they would go to the pub halfway through. You'd play for an hour, then they'd go and have a break for 20 minutes, and then come back and play for another hour. Uh, just for the hell of it, one one day when they went over to the pub, I stayed behind, um, got an acoustic guitar out and played Masters of War. Now, you've got to understand, I was playing Twist and Shout three times a night at that, <laughs> at that time. Uh, the audience loved it, but they never applauded. I mean, they, you know, everybody danced. And uh, when I played 
don't know what it is. <laughs> and um, I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was incredibly powerful. And uh, so, you know, I began to write my own songs, and I learned all Bob Dylan songs. And uh, when I went up to London, uh, I got a residency in a little folk club. I played there every Friday for the next two and a half years. And then, of course, <laughs> along comes another uh, crazy opportunity, which shouldn't have happened, but did, which is that I was living in this uh, apartment in the East End of London. And uh, one day the landlady said to me, oh, you've got to move out of your room because there's this American folk singer who stays here whenever he comes. You, but you can go into the neck of the room next door. I said, what's his name? And she said, Paul Simon. <laughs> so, so then I found myself for two or three months living next door to Paul Simon, uh, listening to him playing songs through the wall. And I thought, oh, that's how you do it, you know? I remember him writing Homeward Bound and things like that, and I'm a rock and things like that. And um, I thought, well, I'll have a crack at that, you know? <laughs> Dylan seemed out of range. By then he'd written Desolation Row and you know, things that I couldn't even imagine writing. It's all right, Mark, things like that. Uh, but Paul, you know, like I'm sitting on the railway station, got a ticket for my destination. I mean, that didn't sound too difficult. So <laughs> I, 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 I loved what Dylan was doing, but it was beyond me. But I thought I might have a crack at, at writing songs like Paul. So I did. Yeah. <laughs> it weren't as good. Now, now, <laughs> now, now, what was the folk scene like back then? I mean, was it, you know, when you played, was there... You know, you said you had, you played for two and a half years. You was it just you, or would you bring on acts? And who were some of the people that were playing with you? Oh, uh, they all became uh, I mean, not household names, but they all you know ended up playing big concert halls and being you know in a folky kind of a way rather famous. Um, who was around the Incredible String Band, uh, Ralph McTell, Roy Harper, Bert Chance, John Rambo, and John Martin eventually. Uh, Fairport Convention, Sandy Denny. Uh, you know, still I spat. <laughs> I mean, all of these people became rather well known in England, and, and almost none of them translated to America. Uh, Bert Chance was incredibly popular in, in, in England. We all idolized him, I think. Uh, his first record, it's a folk record, just one acoustic guitar, and it sold 100,000 copies on a minor label, which is like going gold in America. So, and the incredible string band sold out the Royal Albert Hall. Ralph McTell had a top three single, as did Phil S. Band. So, uh, you know, all these people had a success um, eventually in England, but uh, like I said, somehow or other, the whole English folk scene never got over to America. Uh, you got Cat Stevens, and that was about it, and Donovan, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, you're plugging away, you're working, you're working your craft, you're writing, you're, you know, you're, you're, performing what you're doing what you love when do you get a record deal how did you get your first record deal oh that was great uh, <laughs> because you know the your goal is always to make a record it seemed in, impossible it just seemed like it especially as a folk singer i mean singing in a, in a little coffee bar in the west end of london i mean how do you get a record deal but the answer was that um, the person who was managing me at the time had um, a band called the piccadilly line and um, he'd signed them to CBS, and then he said as an afterthought, well, you can have the Piccadilly line because they really wanted them, but you've got to take our Stuart as well. And they said, well, we don't care about our Stuart. And, and he said, well, then you can't have the Piccadilly line. And they said, oh, all right, we'll then make an album and see what happens. So uh, I, I literally went in through the back door. <laughs> 
Now, what was it like when you got in the studio? I mean, was it, you, you know, you had the material. Was it a little bit nerve-wracking? Because, once again, you that's your goal. You want to get a record deal. Now you're yeah. in the studio, and you're like, oh, my God, my goal is coming true. I'm getting a record deal. How was it in the studio for you on that first album? Well, the first album was a complete mess. Um, Judy Collins had made an album called In My Life, which everybody loved. Um, and she'd done it with an orchestra. And so uh, CBS, in their wisdom, said, oh, you know, focusing as an orchestra, so that's going to work. Uh, so they got in, um, oh, I don't know, I think his name was Sandy, Sandy somebody. Uh, and he conducted the London Symphonia, who was a classical guy. And um, they decided to put me together with an orchestra. And I, <laughs> I, I mean, if I'd have made that record six months earlier, it would have been an acoustic folk record. And if I'd made it six months later, it would have been a folk rock record. But you know, they wanted an orchestra, um, which I then spent the next three years paying for. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, we, 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 we had a crack at it. it the, the, it's all over the place. I mean, I like some tracks, but most of it is, you know, very hard to listen to. Um, but then immediately after that, um, I hooked up with Fairport Convention, and we did make a folk rock record, and that one sold a, a heck of a lot better, actually. <laughs> now, I don't know if I, I read, you you had a title track back then that was 18 minutes long. Yeah, Love Chronicles, the album was called Love Chronicles. No, no, how did, how did, how did, I was going to say, how did, the, how did the record company and the producers respond to that? Because it's like, I love old songs. I love long songs, but how, I mean, that was really brash on your part, and it's awesome. Well, I mean, you know, Del, I mean, Desolation Row is 11 minutes long. Um, ben Roy Harper had some long songs, too. Uh, I don't think it was unusual for the folk scene, but for pop, of course, everything had to be three minutes. Um, but I think it was my way of rebelling against uh, the constraints of popular music. Uh, I, I, I did, that's true, write a song that was 18 minutes long, but I also wrote a song that was 15 seconds long. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and this was just, you know, like, uh, well, I'm going to do it a different way than, than everyone else, you know, um, which I like. I, I, I think you should be adventurous. You know, there are, you know, three minute singles are all well and good, and some of them are absolutely wonderful, and I love them, but they're still three minute singles. You know, uh, it's not exactly progressive to do that. Now Jimmy Page was played on that played on that album. Yeah, Jimmy played on Love Chronicles on the title track. Yeah. Now, how did you know uh, him? I'd known him because um, he used to be in a band called Neil Christian and the Crusaders, and uh, I knew that, but <laughs> it seemed like no one else did. Uh, and when I made my first single, Jimmy was a session guy back in those days, and he turned up and played on it. And so I started talking to him about, about Neil Christian and the Crusaders, and he was thrilled that I'd actually heard of them. And um, so, you know, we hung out, and, and um, I think I taught him how to tune the guitar to modal D, and he tried to teach me how to play scales in harmonics, which I never could get the hang of. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, that's great. I mean, the, the track was... As you say, 18 minutes long, it was in, I think, about five or six different movements. And Jimmy literally listened to it once and then played it. And what you hear on the record is, is you know, he had one run through and then he played that, um, which is extraordinary to, to memorize all these different chords and things uh, in one take. Now, when you're writing, I mean, 
18 minutes, when you're writing the lyrics, I mean, how do you how do you formulate that? Because, you know, a short song, you can go da-da-da-da-da. But this, it, it's almost like a, a chronicle. I mean, it's, I mean, which it is. I mean, how do you write that when you're sitting down? How do you know when it's, you're not going too long? When you're sitting here going, I'm, I'm, I'm I, I got to keep going because I haven't made my point yet. How do you write a lo- song that long? writing as you're getting popular you played the glastonbury festival what was that like that was the first one what was that like albums in England, but you're not getting a lot of U.S. play. When, when do you start breaking the U.S. scene?
thousand people. <laughs> what in the world is going on here? And it turned out that it was uh, it was just this one radio station just playing Roots to Moscow. It actually gets better, believe it or not, because uh, Casey, okay, sometime in the seventies they did the the top three hundred requests in the history of the station. Um, and Year of the Cat, I think, came in at number 79 or something, and I was thrilled. I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. you know, I've got a song in, in the top 100 of, of all time for KCOK. Uh, but I didn't look at the top of the charts for a while, and when I finally did, the number one song, not surprisingly, was Stairway to Heaven, and the number two song was Layla, and the number three song was Rose Smuska. <laughs> and I thought... My Lord, I mean, that, that is so astounding. I mean, it, it sort of sounds, astounds me to this day. And I just think, what if all the other radio stations in America had played first to Moscow? Because I think that if they had, that would have been the hit. A year of the cat would have been the, uh, you know, the lesser hit. Um, but, you know, it's all down to airplay. It has to be down to airplay. If you don't get it, then no one will ever know. Now, now when, you, when you came to tour to the States, was that your first time in the U.S.? Uh, my first time in the U.S. was, oh, 1968. Um, I was making, well, I'd made Bad Sitter Images, and that was that, and I was in, in the process of writing the songs for Love Chronicles. And uh, I came over to try and persuade the American Columbia Records, because I was on CBS in the U.K., uh, to try and persuade them to release my albums, and I, I, I got absolutely nowhere. I mean, <laughs> it was basically go away, you know. And um, so I did go away. But I didn't do a tour until probably 75, I think. What did you What did you think about the States when you first came over? Because I always wonder, you know, I, I, went, I went to uh, my honeymoon three years ago. We went to Croatia, and I had never been to Europe. And, and I, was, I was blown away how it was so different than America, and it was so historical, and just you just look at it, and you're fascinated, because living near Philadelphia, you always think, oh, the Liberty Bell history. And I'm like, yeah, but this doesn't compare to Europe. What was, it, what was your thought when you came to the States when you started touring for the first time? Well, I mean... I'd, I'd been sitting in my, I grew up in a thatched cottage in the middle of nowhere in the countryside in England. And uh, yeah, I would listen to the radio and the Beach Boys would come on and they would be singing round, round, get around, I get around. And I wish they all could be California girls. And it just, it sounded like sunshine and beautiful women and, and uh, great music. Uh, and, and outside of that, I'd never had a cheeseburger <laughs> <laughs> with French fries. And I thought, I want to go to America, I want to have a cheeseburger, and, and I want to have a look and see if I understand this culture, because as you say, it's completely different. I think the opposites attract. I mean, living in a thatched cottage 10 miles from the nearest town, um, you know, you, you, you really, really, as a teenager, you don't want that. You want uh, some excitement in your life, and you want company, and you want to meet like-minded people. And to my way of thinking, they were all in America. Uh, of course, Americans like thatched cottages in the English countryside. So I would have swapped, you know, like absolutely any any day to to get to California back then. But um, it, it took some time to arrange. Now, in '75, you start working with Alan Parsons. How how did that happen? How did you guys get paired up? Did he look for you? Did the record company put you with him? Or how how did that happen? I mean, I've collected wine really for most of my adult life. 
um, and uh, various moments I've been tempted to actually get into the wine business instead of being a musician because that's the only thing I really know, know a lot about. Um, anyway, Alan was a, a big wine freak. He loved it. And uh, I, I even, I, we went out to dinner because we used to go out and have elaborate dinners. Um, and uh, halfway through the dinner, um, I, I, I said, uh, oh, I'm making a new album. Would you like to produce it? And he looked at me and said, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> then we went back to, I even remember what bottle of wine I was drinking. This is, this is crazy stuff. Right? It was a 1966 Chateau Palmer. Um, so I went back to talking about that. Uh, we had no further discussion whatsoever about it. I just, he said, when you're ready, give me a call and uh, I'll produce it. So that's what happened. Now, now, when did you start this great affinity towards wine? Because it's like wine, it's, it's wine is such a tricky thing because, you know, you, you want to be, you want to be a wine connoisseur, but then you, you screw up and you buy something crappy and your friends at a party say, what is this? And you go, well, I thought it was good. But when, when did you really learning about wine? Um, well, that, how did that happen? Um, I knew when it was. It was 1971. I, I knew what it was. Um, I went into a wine store, and like everybody else at that age, uh, I would try and find something that was, you know, a couple of bucks or something. And uh, two-buck chuck. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the... the there were these bottles with numbers on them and uh, I said what do these numbers mean and uh, the wine guy said oh you know the, this is vintage the vintage red Bordeaux, uh, the number 1966 or 61 or whatever it is uh, is the vintage is the year that the, the wine was produced and I said well I've never had one of these before they seem a bit expensive and he said well try one so I did. I know what that was too. It was a 1961 Calon Segur. Um, so I tried it and it blew my head off. <laughs> so every every time I did a gig and I had some money in my pocket, I'd go back to our bins and uh, I just worked my way through. 1961 was a great year in Bordeaux, so I worked my way through all of their 61s and then started experimenting with um, other years. And then, then I got into Red and here started drinking those. And I would steam all the labels off and put them in a book um, and write comments underneath so that I knew exactly what I thought of them. And uh, I, I bought lots of wine books and read those. And, um, you know, by, by the time, well, after three or four years, I'd, I'd amassed a collection. <laughs> uh, and then I got really serious about it. I, I, I started reading every book that wasn't nailed down during the day. And at night, I'd go to wine tastings, big ones, you know, where you can taste either 30, 40, 50 different things. And uh, but I just basically worked my way through pretty much every single French wine there was and then started on um, other countries. Um, Robert Parker, who, who was the most famous wine critic, uh, once published a, a top 100 wines of the 20th century, and I'd had 63 of them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, including some really, really, really obscure rare ones. Uh, there are some wines I've tasted where probably not more than a dozen people in the world have ever had them. Uh, I go all the way back to 1811, and uh, I had the 1811 it came on its 200th birthday, uh, and, and that. I, mean, I was just invited because everyone knows I'm a wine freak. So the guy who um, ran Blackberry, I think it's a computer company in Canada, invited me to taste the uh, 1811 again. I had to fly to Toronto.
So, so you meet Alan, you ask him to produce your album, he produces it, and then all of a sudden, when Year of the Cat came out, were you ready to be, like, to have this huge hit? I mean, what's that like when you're sitting there? Did you know that that album was going to be, you know, really make you huge in the U.S.? No, of course not. I mean, I'd made six albums before Year of the Cat, and none of them had uh, been a hit anywhere in the world. And I, I think Modern Times got to, like, number 30, which I thought was amazing. Um, but, you know, we, I'd never had a hit single. I, I didn't think in terms of singles. I was trying to be a writer. Um, I was trying to write lyrics, you know, and, and, and the, the singles, it was, uh, you know, I loved what I loved what the Beatles were doing, and I loved what you know, the Beach Boys and all those people were doing, but it just seemed beyond my abilities, so I never thought about it, never thought about being commercial at all. I just thought I wanted to be a good writer. And um, so Year of the Cat was a shock to the system. Um, when I look back on it, you know, because <laughs> there, there was a moment there where we were, you know, almost famous, as the movie says. Um, and it was like visiting another planet. I didn't feel like I belonged. I, I really didn't think I belonged as a front man on a stage with a band in behind me playing uh, hit records. I mean, I felt like a complete imposter, to be, <laughs> to be honest. So there was part of me that was thrilled that we had a hit. And uh, the rest of me was thinking, well, let's get out of this and go back to being a folk singer again, because at least I know how to do that. You know? Yeah, well, how do you balance that? Because once again, you know, you you know, you feel like you're an imposter, but you know you're not because you've had albums before. That it's not like you're just some guy. Who, this is his first album, and you know this. How do you balance that? I mean, because as you're sitting there and you're touring, and and as the record company, I'm sure is saying, we got to get another album out soon. We got to get another album out. How do you sit there as you're the cat is getting bigger and bigger? How do you sit there and plan on what direction you're going to do? I had a hit, and I've been doing it since I was 17, so 
how does your life change when you you get that hit? You know, you make more money. I'm sure. You know, you like all of a sudden you're like people recognizing you more. I mean, how did your life change? And and the thing is, you were 30, so you were you were already, you were matured because you had been doing this for a long time. But but what what are some of the things? Did you treat yourself when you started getting a big hit? Like what was some treats you took there? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's ironic. It's exactly the opposite. It's true. Uh, as a folk singer, because I only had one acoustic guitar, um, I was paid pretty well because I was one of the best known folk singers in the UK. Um, so I had no expenses whatsoever. I mean, I would put the guitar in the back of the car, drive to, you know, whatever university I was playing at that night. Um, they'd give me a fistful of money and I'd come back and throw it in a drawer. And it just accumulated. I mean, woo. You know, you start doing four shows a week, say, you know. Um, for, I don't know, 500 pounds a night or whatever I was getting paid at the time. And it really builds up very, very quickly. I mean, you get drawers full of cash. You don't know what to do with it all. In my case, I bought a Ferrari because um, uh, I needed to get to gigs and back again uh, as quickly as possible. <laughs> I mean, I'd do the show and, uh, you know, I'd come out at midnight. And if I was in, I don't know, Newcastle, it's about 260 miles north of London. I had to drive back to London after the show. Uh, in, the, in my Mini, uh, that would take six or seven hours, and the Ferrari, it took three. So, uh, <laughs> so, so okay, so then, then Year of the Cat comes along, and all of a sudden, the expenses were astronomical. I mean, you know, we had to take a band on the road, we needed a road crew, we needed lighting, we needed piano tuners, we needed <laughs> roadies, uh, management, I mean, it, it just was insane. I think the height of the insanity was that we went to Japan, and I think we took 26 people to Japan. Now, this is a recipe for losing money hand over fist, uh, which is what I did. Uh, during the, the period where Year of the Cat and then Time Passages became hits, um, I actually made no money whatsoever because it all went to expenses. Whereas when I was a folk singer in England, I was making a lot. <laughs> now, when you when you come up with time passages, because you know you said you're a songwriter, you're you don't you don't you're not writing hits. You're writing from your heart what you want to write. Did the studio pressure you that you needed another hit because you were coming off Year of a Cat, or did they let you do what you do because they just said, you know what, that's how we're going to get results? No, um, that's the only time in my entire life that anybody from a record company has ever requested that I do something and the only request we'd signed to Arista and Clive Davis uh, wanted one song on the album that had a saxophone on it and went at 120 beats per minute so those were my marching orders and uh, the other eight songs on the record as far as he was concerned I could write whatever I wanted and he didn't want to listen to them anyway just wanted the one that would get played on the radio so the one and only time in my life that I ever attempted to write commercially was um, I attempted to write Year of the Cat Part 2 and called it t Time Passages. It was somewhat tongue-in-cheek, too, because <laughs> I was kind of kidding around. I wasn't taking it very seriously, but people liked it and they bought it, so hallelujah. But, I mean, there are other tracks um, on that album that I like a lot more and all as well. Well, now, a little after that, you recorded your first live album. What's it like when you record a live album? Is it in your head, like, okay, i got to really get these tracks right, or do you not think about it? I used to do, I used to do, I did this touring stand-up comedian for eight years, and whenever I do an audition tape, I'd always, like, tighten up. You know, like, I'm taping myself, and, and I was never myself, 
what's it like when you're taping a live album? Because it's a, it's a, it's an album, and, and you, you know you want to deliver. But were you just at ease, or was it a few different takes, or how did you do it? Um, well, if I know I'm being recorded, it feels like either uh, the music is being taken down and held in evidence against you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so there is that aspect to it. Uh, if it's a normal show and I don't know I'm being recorded, I'm perfectly okay. I, I half-jokingly always say, I don't get stage fright, I get off-stage fright, uh, because uh, on stage I know exactly what I'm doing. Uh, it's only in real life that everything becomes complicated. <laughs> so, um, no, I don't think I thought much about it. We just went out and twanged and uh, did what we normally do, you know. Now, now, after after twenty four carats, you know, eventually you get it dropped by Arista. What 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 is that like when you get dropped by a record label? Were you were you sort of relieved because now you could you could do what you wanted, even though you're doing it? I mean, where did you think your career would go from there at that point? Oh, downhill, I suppose. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't mind. I mean, I, I I didn't get into it into this business to make money. I didn't get into this business to make hits. I didn't even get into this music particularly to make music. Um, I, I got into it to be a lyric writer. And, you know, there is, um, there's a limited appeal in that. I think for maybe 95% of audiences, they don't listen to words anyway. You know, it's just the beat and it's the sound. And sometimes it's down to trousers and hairstyles if it's popular music. Very rarely is it, that, is it down to lyric writing. There are people who stand out because even in pop and rock and roll, there are some terrific writers, you know, John Lennon, Pete Townsend, Ray Davis, people like that know what they're doing, um, or Steely Dan. Um, but uh, for a lot of popular music, the lyrics are just not important. Um, and for me, a lot of that kind of music is not important because I can't listen to a song if at least it's not making some attempt to be original and some attempt to be well-written. I mean, there have been 10 songs already, at least, uh, in the top 10, all called Hold On. Now, if you if you write a song now, after all this, and call it Hold On, you're, you're either deeply cynical, um, and, and you think, well, all the others were hit, so maybe this one will too, or, you li or literally you don't know anything about the history of popular music, because no self-respecting person would write the same title. Um, you know, that's already, already been used 10 times by other artists. So I, I can tell you that the th whole philosophy behind what I do is, is really just two things. One is um, write, write about things that no one else writes about. It could be, oh, I don't know, it could be absolutely anything. I could be writing about the ceiling in the British Museum, you know. Um, and the other one is uh, don't use language that other people use all the time. So no hang on babies and hold on one more time and uh, none of this, you know, write, oh, we'll write about naval battles in the, in the 16th century, you know, and use the language of the day. Uh, I, I'm a really big one for using archaic language. There are some there are some wonderful phrases that are just you know haven't been used for two hundred years, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to use them because I am if they're good. No. Uh, okay. So yeah, you know, be original. Uh, this above all things, uh, be original. Now, how do you keep being original though? Because you you you've had nineteen albums. I mean, the, the, it's it's something that. You know, when you sit down, do you sit there? First of all, do you sit down and write, or do you wait till something comes for you? I know you said you started with the last line of the song, but when you write a song, and through your whole career, 
Do you sit there and go, okay, tonight I'm going to write a song? Or do you say, if something comes, then I'll work on it? Yeah, it's, um, well, the, usually how it goes, especially if it's a historical song, um, I'll read a book. And, um, you know, like I'm reading about Ferdinand of Bulgaria or something. Um, and it'll just stick in the back of my mind. Uh, 20 years later, I'll have a tune and uh, I'll think of Ferdinand and um, I, I'll go, oh, that's a good person to write a song about. Um, it, it, it happens just like that. You store little bits of information away in the back of your head uh, and they surface at totally unexpected times. I mean, you know, you'll be sitting down doodling on the guitar or the piano and uh, one of these characters will suddenly want to be in the song. So, of course, I say yes. Now, now you wrote an album about wine called "Down in the Cellar." How did how did you come up with that idea? I mean, you're a big wine lover, and you you know you've tried all these great wines. But did you, was that a, a project where you said, "I'm I'm going to just I'm going to write a I'm going to write a wine album"? I mean, where did that come from? Oh, that came from a record company, um, now defunct, um, and it was a commission. Uh, the, the, I think the Napa Valley, um, the wine country in California, is the sixth, perhaps, uh, the biggest attraction, you know, for tourists. Uh, and they, you know, there are all these tasting rooms, wine tasting rooms all over the place up there. And uh, so this uh, uh, guy from a record company came and said, you know, we want to sell albums of music, you know, which are about wine. And we're told that you're the biggest expert on wine, you know, in the music business. <laughs> so will you kindly write us a wine album? And I, I just thought it was a challenge, and I thought, oh, yeah. And in the end, I, I didn't really I didn't really write exclusively about wine. I, I, it, it contains other things as well, but most of the songs have references to wine. Um, but it, it produces, you know, very interesting things. Uh, the most famous uh, producer of, of uh, red wine in the Rhone Valley, for example, is uh, a guy called Jean-Louis Chave. C-H-A-V-E, and uh, so I wrote a song about Jean-Louis Chard. I mean, the family started the winery, I think, 1483, uh, and it's been father to son handed down for, well, over, <laughs> over five centuries at this point. Uh, and, I, and it was not really a song about wine. It was a song about um, the enduring presence of the Chard family in the Rhone Valley. Uh, amazingly enough, uh, I knew uh, Jean-Louis Chard's American importer, uh, and uh, uh, Jean-Louis came over to San Francisco. And they had a mammoth tasting. He makes a wine called Hermitage, and they tasted, I think, 30 vintages of it, and he was the guest of honor. And after all of that, the next day, they were driving back um, to, Eddie, uh, to the importer's house, and they were driving past my front door. And um, Eddie said to Jean-Louis Chaff, oh, incidentally, um, there's this guy who's written a song about you. <laughs> and so they banged on my door, and in comes Jean-Louis Chaff, so plunks himself down on, on my uh, settee. I pour him a glass of champagne and play him the song, and I thought he was going to burst into tears. But this, this is life imitating art. It's, uh, it's just amazing who you meet and, and uh, you know, where, where, these things, where these things take you. Uh, in my lifetime, I think, Almost all the most interesting people that I've met in my life, most of whom aren't in the music business, have been through wine. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I go to a wine tasting one night, and um, 
this uh, this the black guy sitting opposite me, and uh, my host, who's mischievous, uh, said uh, uh, he, he works for Tamla Motown. So I start talking about you know the four tops and the temptations and all the rest of it, and he just looks blankly at me. It becomes obvious to me that he doesn't work for Tamla Motown. So I said, well, what do you do? And he's waving his hand in front of my face, and it's got rings all over it. I don't know what it means. Um, and it turns out that he was Len Swan, and he was the, the wide receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he won four Super Bowls. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I thought he worked for Tamla Motown. I mean, this sort of thing happens all the time if you go to enough wine tastings, because people who are serious and collect you know, really great wine um, usually have done other remarkable things in their lives, you know, whether it's winning Super Bowls or acting or founding companies or, or whatever. Um, and I have no, I don't know these people. And I wouldn't normally ever come across them in my whole lifetime. I mean, you know, most musicians uh, hang out with other musicians. It's just what they do. Uh, I very rarely do that because I, I like this huge diversity which you get from going to wine tastings. Now, with your musicianship, you know, in, in 2015 you played Royal Albert Hall. Was that your first time playing there? No, no, I played there at least eight times, I think. What's what's it like playing there? Because it's a legend. What's it like when you walk into a legendary venue? I mean, do you, do you feel it? Like I know actors who've been on Broadway, and they feel it. They say the backstages are always disgusting, but when you walk in the building, there's that feel. Is there is there a certain feel? Like like it's a different gig when you walk into like a Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, it, it's it has so much historical blast to it. I mean, Winston Churchill used to make speeches there. Um, everybody you've ever heard of in your life has played there. Um, and, uh, well, of course, it's the first place that I saw Bob Dylan, so it has a, a resonance. You know, I think it's an honor to play at the Royal Albert Hall. It, 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 it really is. Um, and, uh, like I said, I've done it quite a few times, but, uh, you know, any time you're there is, is, is wonderful. Now, you're still touring. What's it like touring these days? Is it, I mean, first of all, how was it, you tour a lot. How was it for you during the pandemic when you couldn't get on stage? Did you sit there and enjoy the free time and enjoy your wine? Or did you have a hankering? Like, I, I, I really miss connecting with my audience. No, no, it was absolutely great um, to, to, you know, just lie fallow for two years. Uh, I could read all the books that I never got round to, as the, as the song says. Um, taste lots of wine and uh, basically hang out and not not have to. I mean, my my life consists of um, looking at uh, schedules and, and just following them. I'll get a schedule, and it'll say get up at eight o'clock, go to the airport, fly to Cincinnati. Um, so of course I do because that, that's that's the job. Um, but not having to do that, I mean, waking up in the morning and having an absolute blank canvas in front of you uh, just seemed absolutely wonderful to me after, what, nearly 60 years of, <laughs> of gigging. Uh, so I, I loved having the time off, but, you know, we've gone back, now we're playing again, and, and I like that too. So I think that it, it clears your head to have a little, little bit of time off, because if you just tour incessantly, you can't see the big picture. Well, you, you did also, you did a few shows with Dave Mason. What's that like? Because you guys are both legends. I mean, is that cool when you sit there with another guy who's a great musician like yourself and you've, you've played for a long time, you've kept your popularity? What's that like? Like, do you guys bond? Did you guys set this up together or did some company set it up together? Uh, Dave's, um, you know, he, he's an interesting guy. I mean, he, he's, he's completely different to me. I mean, you know, he, he's 
always a much better guitar player. We bonded over, um, the, in England, before the Beatles, there was a group called The Shadows, um, and uh, the lead guitar player of The Shadows is a guy called Hank B. Marvin, uh, and he is absolutely a legend. I mean, there's no one in, in England that doesn't know about Hank. Um, and it turned out that Dave Mason was a, a big Hank Marvin fan too, as indeed is, is uh, every single person from that generation. Uh, without Hank, you wouldn't have, you know, your pages and Claptons and things. I mean, Hank, Hank Marvin is, uh, again, the, he, he's the instrumental source of the Nile. With Ron Jonigan is the vocal source of the Nile, then Hank Marvin is the instrumental one. And uh, Dave's a big fan of Hank Marvin. Well, so, so is pretty much everyone else. Um, and, and he can play shadow songs, and so can I. So, <laughs> you know, we, we occasionally will do, um, we used to play Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny. Um, I'd play rhythm and Dave would play lead. So, you know, they, they, we have those things in common. And, and um, for the rest of it, it's just, uh, you know, I'm the opening act usually if I'm working with Dave. So I go on and do my thing and um, then leave it up to him. Now, now you're on their new tour, you're playing with a band called the Empty Pockets. How, how did you how did you hook up with them? Oh, well, that's uh, another complete accident. I mean, we've now done hundreds of shows together, and uh, I, I think apparently, according to them, we've been doing it for six years. It, it really doesn't seem that long, but I guess it must be. Um, I was doing a, a double header with Gary Wright, who you all remember Dreamweaver, I'm mm -hmm. sure. And so Gary and I were doing a series of gigs together. And uh, Gary uh, said, oh, I've got this backing band. Uh, they're, they're from Chicago, and they're called the Empty Pockets. And they're going to be on the show. So I said, well, maybe they can learn one of my songs, you know, too, because it'd be fun if they learned Year of the Cat. So um, they did learn Year of the Cat. And after that, Gary didn't want to work with them anymore, because I, I, I don't know, one reason or another, musicians come and go. But I thought it was uh, it was great, and I got on with, all, with all of them really well. They were very enthusiastic, and uh, I said, well, why don't you learn some more of my songs? And they, and they did. Um, and we started doing shows together, but you know, this all happened because of Gary Wright. Now, you, you have a cruise coming up, right? Are you, You're doing a On the Blue cruise. What's it like when you play a cruise? Do you do you mingle with the people? Do you talk? Do you do like a wine talk, talk to the people, or is it just you play and then you disappear? Or how does that work when you play on a cruise? Because I've never been on a music cruise. Now, now you play. You played.
um, and there are probably oh I don't know twenty five different acts you know on, on during the course of the cruise. Um, most of whom I know because they're all the same age as me. I mean, I know the Zombies and Alan Parsons, obviously, and Ambrosia and Farfall and all these people that go on the cruises. Um, so it, it's really like a, an old people's home for aging rock stars. I mean, everyone knows everyone and everyone else, and we all hang out. Uh, you can go to the bar and hang out with all these people and, and tell war stories. <laughs> now, now you you recently you you played in uh, England. Now you're coming to the states. Did, is there a difference between the crowds? I mean, and, and you you're you're originally you know you you got your chops in England. So do you is there a difference in crowds when you go, or or or, or is an Al Stewart crowd universal? Um, it's pretty universal. I mean, obviously. No one would come to see me if they liked disco music, you know, because they, they would not know what the heck was going on. Um, but having said that, I'm still, because I never had a hit in England, it's the only, uh, I think it's the only place pretty much in the, you know, the world market where Year of the Cat wasn't a hit. Um, Top of the Pops said they'd play it if it got to number 30, and it got to number 31. So I missed, I missed it by, by one notch. Uh, and for that reason, I think I'm still thought of in England as being a folk singer, whereas I'm not pretty much everywhere else in the world. So it's different in that sense. I, I can still get out the acoustic guitar and go back to my old job, um, as well as blending with you know the, the, the pockets and the, uh, the, the the better known things. So yeah, that would be a difference. Um, but apart from that, audiences are pretty consistent. Now, when when did you move to LA, and, and what took you out to that area? Um, well, I came over to promote Modern Times. I think that was the first time I set foot in Los Angeles, um, and uh, I played with a club called the Starwood, which isn't there anymore. And I was on a bill with Ian Matthews, and um, it, it just the first twenty four hours in Los Angeles were completely nuts. I mean. It, Probably the best time I ever had in my life. Thinking back on it, uh, there was a on Sunset Strip. There's a famous hotel, the, the Hyatt House, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which is right there on on, on Sunset Strip. And uh, bands, all, all the bands stayed there, and they used to call it the Riot House because it was, you know, it was just a hijinks and, and um, you know, nonstop craziness. And on the occasion that I checked in there, Led Zeppelin was staying in, on the top floor. And uh, there were, I don't know, something like 200 groupies in the lobby. And I'm standing waiting for the elevator, and the elevator door opens, and there's Jimmy Page. And he comes out, throws his arm around me, uh, and gives me a kiss on the side of the cheek. And I immediately have 200 female fans. <laughs> 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 and I thought, well, that doesn't happen in folk clubs in London. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is just another strata of uh, experience. And I loved it to death, so I moved there. Now, one final question: uh, Do you still write a lot? I mean, are you? Is that something that's in you, or, or are you now concentrating more on reading? Or, I mean, how does it? How how does your process work now? Well, um, the, the, in terms of writing, yes, um, I've got songs that. Uh, I, I mean, on the last, not this English tour, the one before, uh, I think we played five new songs. Um, what I don't do is record them because uh, it's frighteningly expensive to make a record and uh, you know, being a septuagenarian folk singer there's a very limited market for that sort of thing um, so I write them for my own benefit more I mean, occasionally I'll, I'll dust one off and play it on stage I, I do do that um, but I, I can't 
Okay, one more thing. Uh, do people tell you that you just have such a soothing voice? Like, I can listen to your music, and it's just so soothing. I mean, how does one keep a soothing voice? Um, I, well, it, 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 gets, it depends whether people like it or not. I mean, if you don't like it, people say it's fey. Um, it doesn't have any oomph behind it, and it, it's sort of... Uh, Kim Fowley once told me that I came on stage like Donovan on Valium. <laughs> <laughs> awesome Al. I want to thank you so much for doing the show. I've been a fan and uh, people go to alstewart.com. He has a bunch of merch. You can check out all his albums. You can buy all his albums, you know, from his store or from Amazon. Uh, it shows his tour dates coming up. He's coming swinging down the East Coast in, uh, in March, it looks like, in April. And so people check him out. Uh, also go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 930 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Facebook, Cooper Talk Radio, Twitter, at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.